I hope you at least enjoyed singing those last two songs as at least half as much as I did. Two great old songs with a little bit of a modern twist. Isaac Watts, Horatius Bonar. What a cool name, Horatius Bonar. Glad my parents didn't name me Horatius, but it's still a cool name. Um, if you want to read some old, old good-for-your-soul good theological writings, um, it's probably free, available on the Internet. Just a great emphasis on Christ and what He has done for us. Uh, a great compliment to the things we'll talk about this morning. Things that will always be true. I want to begin by getting you to think about how someone or different people respond to you uh, when you ask them something along the lines of, what does God require? So if you were to ask uh, a family member, a friend, uh, what, is it, what do you think God requires of us? What kind of response would you receive? Well, you probably would receive a different response depending on the kind of person you're asking. So in whatever words you'd like to use, if you ask someone who doesn't know very much about the Bible, uh, living in America right now, uh, and you say to them, uh, what is it that God requires? What do you think God requires? Well, if they don't know much about the Bible, there's a good possibility they're going to say, well, He requires that we do our best. Uh, He requires that we're good, um, and we try our best to be good. That's That's a pretty common response. And then on the other end of the range, you ask someone who knows the Bible, you ask someone maybe here this morning, or someone else who went to church this morning, you're going to meet later, what do you think, what is it that God requires of us? And they're going to say something like, God requires that we believe in Jesus. And there's all kinds of answers in between. Today we're going to talk about what God requires of us, and I want you to know I sure like the second answer better than the first answer. God requires that we believe in Jesus. That's, that's the right answer. That's what is even a command uh, in Acts chapter 16, I think it is. It's actually a command to believe in Jesus. It's what God wants people to do. It's His Son, so trust in His Son. I like that answer. Uh, it's a great answer. I really like that answer because we just got done studying 1 John. And not only that, before that we studied the gospel according to John. And the repeated statement again and again is... Now that we know who Jesus is, Jesus keeps saying, believe in me, believe in me, believe in me. And what he means is, trust in me, trust in me, trust in me, depend upon me, depend upon me, depend upon me, have faith in me, have faith in me, have faith in me. And he says, do that so that you will have what? Eternal life. That is the refrain. It comes up again and again and again throughout that writing and throughout Jesus' statements. Trust in me for eternal life. I'm the one who pays for your sins. I'm the one who is the righteous. If you trust in me, God will accept you. I'm the one who is the mediator. First John gives assurance to people who've done that. So it's definitely on my mind. But this morning I'd like to talk about the thing behind the thing. And sometimes it's important to talk about the thing behind the thing. In other words... What is it that Jesus did? Who is it that Jesus is to have the important good answer be God requires that we believe in Him? In other words, what I'm getting at is why would we believe in Jesus for eternal life? What is it that Jesus has done? What has Jesus accomplished? 
What's the thing behind the thing? Oftentimes, we don't know the thing behind the thing. And then we use shorthand and we say, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus, believe in Jesus. And then we communicate that to people and they have no idea why they would believe in Jesus. Sometimes we even forget why we would believe in Jesus. So the thing behind the thing, I'll probably say it a few more times this morning. You could call the sermon the thing behind the thing. We believe in Jesus. That's the right response. That's what God requires. But why? What does He accomplish that would call for us believing in Him, trusting in Him? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Okay? And we're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 10. And we're going to talk about what God requires, and then we'll be able to see Jesus for the one who meets the requirement. We're going to do a, a brief series called Jesus is Better. And we're going to start that this morning. Uh, I think we'll probably do 2 John and 3 John in not uh, very many weeks, and so we'll, we'll do that. But we're going to take a little bit of time and talk at, at different passages. We're going to look at Luke 10. We're going to look at Romans chapter 10. We're going to look at Romans chapter 5, Romans chapter 2, and other texts, not this morning. As a little refresher, as a little reminder, because lots of people, not necessarily at Omaha Bible Church, but lots of people I know, don't really know what God requires. And even if they get the simple answer right, they don't really know what the thing behind the thing is. And what that leads to is then we don't really appreciate who Jesus is. And we don't really appreciate what He accomplished. And so this hopefully leads to better worship, more informed devotion, desire. Oh, since we were studying First John and it was about assurance... This is definitely about assurance. Things we're going to talk about today, people who don't like Christian assurance don't like the things we're talking about today. Okay? But I like to talk about assurance because I know that that's good and right from 1 John. So, Luke 10, I'm going to call a touchstone text. It's a touchstone text. A touchstone is like... The, the stone you go back to again and again to see if something's right. Okay? From what I read in dictionaries, a touchstone is something that they used to use. It's a flint-like stone, and they used to use it when they would be mining for gold and silver, and you could rub the metal on the touchstone, and it would make a certain kind of mark, and you would know that it was real. So in real simplified terms, if you're mining for gold or panning for gold or whatever it is, and you want to know if it's real or fool's gold, you run over to the touchstone. And you do it again and again and again and again because you want to know if it's real or not. Luke 10 is a touchstone kind of passage. Okay, It's one we want to go back to again and again and again and again. And I do all of the time at Omaha Bible Church but not necessarily in the text itself. And I want you to see it so you can know better, so you can know Jesus better, so you can worship Him appropriately, and you can be a better evangelist. Or you could be a, a, a better person sharing the gospel with other people. What does God require of us? What does God require? What did Jesus do? Luke 10 is the touchstone kind of text. So let's look at verse 25 26, 27, 28, and 29. So the latter part there, it's what leads into the parable of the Good Samaritan. By the way, I think we should read the Good Samaritan in light of this, and that would be a whole other sermon, and it would be interesting. I might have to quick sneak it in at the end. 
Here we go. Luke 10, uh, verse 25. You guys ready? Ready to run to the touchstone? Okay, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test. Jesus has been with the Samaritans. Jesus has been doing miracles. Jesus has been uh, preaching. And now a lawyer, not like the lawyers we have in this room, but a an expert in the law, an expert in the Bible, the meaning and application of the Bible, okay? An expert theologian in the Old Testament, that's the kind of person we have in view here. The person who has it memorized, the person who knows how to understand it in context, the person who knows how to apply it, okay? So let's get our biggest, strongest mind and go after Jesus because he's upsetting the apple cart, okay? And he said, teacher, speaking to Jesus, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? That's our question, isn't it? It's another way of putting our question, what does God require? Because eternal life would be a life of acceptance by God, life that would last forever, yes, but it's something you experience it even in the here and now. Uh, God has accepted you, God has... Uh, brought you to himself, you're welcome with God in his presence, with the eternal one. We learned a lot about that in the gospel according to John, eternal life. That's what we're looking for. That's what we need, eternal life. We want life that doesn't end with the grave. We want life that's going to, 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 to not be filled with suffering and pain and meaningless meaninglessness. We want eternal life. That's what we're after. It's what everybody's after, even if they don't know they're after it. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Life with God. Life that's been accepted by God or made acceptable. I call it the bazillion dollar question. What do I do to inherit eternal life? It's the most important question ever. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It's pretty amazing the Bible has it this, this clear. That's why it's a touchstone. So I've got to keep coming back to this. What does the Bible say? Well, how about that in verse 26? He, Jesus, said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? That, he, he, what, what is he getting at? He's saying, What does the Bible say? What's written in special revelation coming from God? Not an internal feeling, not the consensus of the elders, not sacred tradition. What does the Bible say is what Jesus is saying. What does special, inscripturated, coming from the mouth of God revelation say? And it's interesting, Jesus, see, Jesus doesn't want to somehow create a conflict between what the Bible says and what he says. Jesus is going out of his way to not give a different answer. It should be as plain as the nose on his face. And if it's like my nose, it's pretty plain. As obvious as obvious could be, Jesus doesn't have to answer the question. He can say, well, what does the Bible say? You're an expert. You know. I think that's important to bring up because sometimes we think they had some kind of riddle book that couldn't be understood and they had all the wrong answers and then somehow Jesus changed the whole thing. 
What is written in the law? How do you read it? This is so interesting. Maybe not at Omaha Bible Church, but this is so interesting to start talking to people about these things. Oftentimes, especially church people. What do I do to gain eternal life? Jesus says, well, what does the Bible say? Now, the man's going to give his answer. And it's an answer that if you're not going to the touchstone again and again and again, if you don't know this answer, you're going to be confused by the Old Testament and the New Testament. What does God require of us? Verse 27 says, And he, the expert in the Old Testament, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Deuteronomy 6, there's only one God and so we have to treat the one who's the only God like he's God, which would be to love him with all of our faculties, including motives. He uses that all-encompassing kind of language from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And then he also goes to another well-known Old Testament text, Leviticus 19. Oh, and the complement to that would be loving your neighbor as yourself. And we could do a little theology here and talk about why he would do that. Well, that's because we're made in God's image. So human beings are unique image bearers. And so we should really have a special, extraordinary kind of love for other people who are kind of like God, not exactly or in essence or anything like that. But it would make sense that we would prioritize people. That's his answer. So as you look at the whole Bible, how do you summarize what God requires? Well, he goes to Deuteronomy 6, pretty good place to go. And he goes to Leviticus 19, pretty good place to go. Love God. Love your neighbor. What do you think so far? Well... Okay. Hmm. Verse 28. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Now that might be a shocker, right? As one of my former mentors would say, that's enough to get you kicked out of Bible college. Because it doesn't seem like the right answer if you're not thinking about the thing behind the thing. It's actually the right answer. What does God require? That's what God requires, first and foremost. Before we know what Jesus does or why we need Jesus, we'd better know that God requires for eternal life that we love Him and love neighbor perfectly. That's what He requires. And again, I'm not apologizing, but I know so many of you know this. Some of you probably don't, and I know that I know that I know that I know that I know you know lots of people who don't know it. So maybe it's equipping for you. But then let's keep reading. At the end of verse 28, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live. Touchstone text. 
Do this and you will live. That's a touchstone statement. We've got to keep coming back to that or the Bible is going to be a riddle book. Jesus affirms the man's answer. That's right. That's exactly what God requires. And if you do that, you'll live. Now, if this, if this is creating a bit of a conundrum for you, uh, a bit of a conflict, a little bit of a does not compute, does not compute, does not compute. I mean, if, you, if you've got the, 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 the little multicolor swirly going on, it's okay. But this is what we need to have swirling in our minds as something that's unsettling or we're never really going to understand Jesus. Question, what does God require for eternal life? Jesus says, what does the Bible say? He tells him what the Bible says in summary, and Jesus says, that's exactly right. Do this and you will live. I have, I think, eight questions to kind of tease this out that we can do this together uh, and talk about this text. We'll look at some other texts as well. But for now, I wanted to make sure that we talked about this touchstone text. I don't preach a sermon ever in my life without at least thinking about this in my mental grid. I don't talk about Jesus. I don't talk about the gospel. I don't think through anything ever in the Bible at all whatsoever, I promise you, without thinking these in this way. God's requirement for eternal life is perfect, perpetual, personal obedience. Loving God and loving neighbor. Now, to just get your swirly thing to stop for a second, that's why we need Jesus to fulfill that obligation for us. But until we understand and have it locked in our mind as the touchstone do this and live, we're going to constantly and forevermore be misunderstanding Jesus' person and work through his life, his death, and his resurrection. Jesus is better than lots of us even thought he was. And that's awesome. Not that he's getting better, evolving, Not that he's ever changed, but better than we realize because we've assumed so many things because of shorthand. Okay. Question number one. What does Jesus mean by you will live? I want you to look at your Bible right there in your hand or on your screen or in your lap you don't have one, you can think about it. What does Jesus mean at the end when he says, do this and you will live? We know what he means according to the context. What's he mean? That you'll have a life of flourishing? That you'll have peace and prosperity? That you'll have a really, really nice long life? What does he mean? Well, according to verse 25, that do this and live refers to what? It's okay. Go ahead. (laughs) Thank you. Eternal life. That's the question. Eternal life. Sometimes I I mention that because sometimes even Bible scholars want to say he's not talking about eternal life. And that's where I want to do the Scooby-Doo headcock. 
and go, hmm? Jesus makes it clear. See, but, but good Bible scholars want to say, hey, salvation is not by obedience and salvation isn't by works, so eternal life isn't by works. And I'm thankful that Bible scholars want to, want to emphasize that. But right now, we're talking about the thing behind the thing. We need Jesus actually to do this so that we might live. He, and question number one, what does he mean by live? He means eternal life. If you do this, love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, perfectly, perpetually, personally, you will have eternal life. He's just dropping the law on the guy. He's saying, this is the good and righteous standard. That's what he's doing. But we, we, we so sometimes, and I'm thankful we want to get to Jesus fast, because that's a good idea. But we want to get to Jesus so fast, we don't even know what Jesus did. And now the Jesus we're believing in isn't that great of a Jesus. Well, he's still, he's still great, but you get the idea. It's better than you think he is. Better than you think he is. So, I got pretty excited about that. Um, how about number two, another question? By the way, good job answering the question. If I were you, I'd circle it. If you're a circler or a highlighter or whatever, do this and live eternal life. Yeah. Touchstone. I want to say touchdown. Touchstone. Got to go back and see if everything is right based upon that reality. Number two, was Jesus wrong in saying this? That's an easy one. No, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. He's absolutely right. To digress a little bit, because that's what I do when I preach, but um, it's related. So even when I read Leviticus 19, when it says, do this and live, I think it's talking about the same thing. And how do I know that it's talking about the same thing? Because Jesus says so. Do this and live. When it says it in Leviticus 19, I think it means eternal life because we have a divinely inspired commentary in Luke chapter 10. He's talking about eternal life. Okay. How about number three? If Jesus, is, was, if Jesus was not wrong, then why don't we think in these terms? We could be here all day talking about that. We probably have just forgotten. We probably use too much shorthand. I'll say it at least one more time. We don't take the time to stop and think about the thing behind the thing. Why do you need Jesus? You need Jesus because God requires that you love Him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And Pat has not done that. So I need Jesus to be the one who does it for me in his living. And then I need him to go to the cross to atone for my not doing it, which is violation, which is sin. 
I need Jesus. I need His work credited to me by faith. I need to believe in Jesus. Number four. This is a big one. You guys okay with this so far? This is not like master's level degree stuff. This is touchstone stuff. Number four. Would it have been possible for this man to do this and live? When, why? Why not? Would this have been possible? Jesus says to the guy, I mean, I'm, I'm summarizing the whole thing. If you love God appropriately, perfectly, perpetually, personally, all those things, and you love your neighbor as yourself, and you do all of that's required, you'll have eternal life. Could he have done it? I think the answer is no. And we're going to get to Romans 5. We'll, spend some, we'll do a Sunday in Romans 5. It'll be amazing. I was once told you'll find a true Bible student based upon whether or not their Bible is worn out in Romans 5. I don't know how this works with iPads and iPhones. Mine's not worn out anywhere. Romans 5. Would it have been possible for this expert in the law to have done this so that he would gain eternal life by his obedience? No. The answer is no. And Romans 5 tells us that the answer is no because he's in Adam. He's united to Adam. He's already one with the sin nature. He's already one who sins. And so he can't already. It would be an absolute impossibility for this guy to do this and gain eternal life. But this is a newsflash for us, perhaps. God requires things that we ourselves cannot do. And we're not even going to talk about the fairness thing today. It's not fair that Jesus, the last Adam, would provide perfect, perpetual, personal obedience and atonement either. But the standard is the same no matter what. It's there. It's intact. And it's all over the place. It's in the Old Testament throughout. It's in the New Testament throughout. And it's designed to show us that we've got to look outside of ourselves for a substitute. Maybe if you would turn to Galatians chapter 2, you all look like you need an opportunity to turn somewhere. Turn to your neighbor and say, God, never, never mind. Um, I think the last time I was at a church where that happened was at uh, maybe Joel Olstein's church. The former Rockets Arena, isn't that where they are? I was preaching in Houston and a friend of mine uh, said, hey, we've always wanted to go hear Joel Osteen preach. And this is somebody who wouldn't like Joel Osteen's theology, um, but we've always wanted to go and, and we never have had a good reason. But when we heard you were coming to town to, pre to preach for us, we knew you'd want to go. I said, sure, there we go. Um, I digress. We were standing in line so we could meet him and ask him questions. And so I said, all right, let's ask questions. He's already been confronted for his terrible theology and his wrong view of things, your best life now, which is impossible because your best life is going to be later, and all this kind of stuff. And so I said, let's ask him more sophisticated kinds of questions. 
Most of you, a lot of you have heard this before, but I'll share it with you again. And and so uh, one guy asked the question, um, if I wanted to learn about your theology and how you view God, what book could I read? And he, what did he answer? He had to think about it. It was, um, what's that guy, a leadership guy? Max, all right. John Maxwell, <laughs> it's like, okay. <laughs> I wanted to learn where he learned his techniques on how to get people to do things he wanted them to do. I didn't use the word manipulation, um, but I was really, that's what I always wanted to ask him. And uh, he said he, he learned it from Billy Graham, and, but he really didn't know. Uh, but it was, it was, it was bizarre, uh, let me tell you that. So we're way off track. How did we even get off on that topic? Houston, Joel Osteen, Galatians. No, it had nothing to do with anything. Maybe it's because Houston got beat so bad last night. Um, By the way, I'll tell you this. I do actually think on a regular basis, Joel Osteen preaches a do this and live reality, but he calls it the gospel. God helps those who help themselves kind of thing. It's legalism light. It's law light, and then you can do something to overcome your problem. What I want to do is preach law heavy. Love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself perfectly. That's law heavy. And you say, I can't. And I say, that's right. You need Jesus to do it for you. Okay? One is legalism. One is just law so that you see your need for the gospel and atonement. Okay, so I I, I salvaged the illustration somehow. Um, We're answering the question, would it have been possible? The answer is no, because he's united to Adam. Romans chapter 3, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Uh, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one has done this. I like Galatians chapter 2 because it helps us to see this as well. Yet we know that a person is not justified, declared righteous, declared an obeyer of God's law. And we just saw what that requires. By works of the law. What he's getting at in Galatians 2.16 is what we were just talking about. Nobody could do that. But through faith in Christ, in Jesus Christ, trusting in Him. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith. To be, to be justified is to be a, a law upholder, a one who's loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved neighbor as self. By faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We're all in Adam. We, we, this, is a, this is an impossibility. It's true, do this and you will live. In principle, right? But nobody can do it except the one who is the last Adam. Number five, why would Jesus affirm the man's answer? How about that? Why would Jesus affirm that man's answer? He was right. The guy was totally right. That's the right answer. I want you all to know and know that you know that you know that you know, touchstone know, that that's the right answer. And if we're not thinking in those terms, we're, we're not going to give the whole truth about Jesus. And that's not going to lead to the kind of worship He deserves. And it's going to lead to confused and distorted kind of perspectives. It's the right answer. 
He just can't do it. He just can't do it. In principle, it's right. This is why old, old confessions, old church agreements where Christians would say, all right, what does the Bible mean by what it says? What can we all agree to? Would talk about this sort of thing. So that the parents could understand it, so they could teach their kids the touchstone, do this and live kind of principle, whether it be in their home or in Sunday school class. It's so that preachers would preach this way. Listen, listen to this confession. And this is old 17th century English, but, but I'll help you along the way. But just so you know, this isn't a new, new reality. This is like basic bedrock. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience in his heart. Like Romans chapter 2, we'll study that a different Sunday. The law of God is written on people's hearts. You should love God and you should love neighbor. God gave to Adam a law of universal obedience written in his heart. And a particular precept of not eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He spoke that out. By which he bound him, Adam, and all his... Old big word, posterity. All those he represented. To, italicized, personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. See, they're drawing upon the heart, soul, mind, strength, personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience. Promised life upon the fulfilling and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with the power and ability to keep it. First Adam. In principle, it was true then. Do this, and you will live. You and all of your posterity, all those you represent. This is Romans 5. It's the do this and live principle, and it's a touchstone. It was true with Adam. It's always been true throughout all generations. And what we need is someone who's called the last Adam to do this and gain living for us. And voluntarily to go to Calvary's cross to experience condemnation and just judgment and make atonement because we haven't done this. It's the thing behind the thing. Should we move on? I I love to know about these things. I love you to know about these things. I want my kids to understand these things. I want everyone I know to understand these things so they can read the Bible and make heads or tails of it. Number six, what makes the do this and live principle so important? Well, we've been talking about it, so I could probably go pretty fast. It runs from Genesis to Revelation. That makes it important. We need atonement for not doing this. We need Christ to die for us and absorb God's condemnation because we didn't do this. We also need Him to actively, positively do this for us so that we might be justified. This is why in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to lessen the requirement. I came to what? I came to fulfill it. 
through personal, perpetual, active, whatever else other the language is. Perfect obedience. I love Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, that we would be found in him, in Christ, not having a righteousness, adherence to the law of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So his perfect obedience is credited to me when I believe in him, and then God sees me as if I were him. And when Jesus is on the cross, he saw his son as if he were me in my rebellion, having never truly, genuinely loved God or neighbor. It's this great exchange. It's amazing to think about. By the way, Matthew 5, I didn't come to abolish the law. I didn't come to lower the law or get rid of the law. I didn't come to give you law light, which is legalism. No, law heavy, high, and I accomplished it. That's why we say, hallelujah, what a savior. We look to him. Number seven, what should the man have done? You're doing a great job tracking with me today. What should he have done? He should have done, like in Luke 18, right? Where the man beats his chest and he says, Woe is me, the sinner, the lawbreaker, the one who awfully doesn't love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and doesn't love neighbor as himself. Woe to me, condemn me. God, please be merciful to me. I can't do it. That's Luke 18. And the Bible says there, And that man went away to his house justified. He got it. He got it. See, the whole thing is designed to crush, right? To smash. Or maybe that's too negative for you. Sorry if I made you feel bad. But it's meant to allow us to see things as they really are. That we can't do it. And so then we cry out in desperation, if no one is righteous, no, not one, and that's what this all means, then we look outside of ourselves to another who is Christ. That's what he should have done. But again, here we are. We try to share the gospel with people and we don't ever talk about the thing behind the thing. It makes me concerned that we're actually not telling them about the gospel. And now it's just a a new kind of life coach. Or maybe in a good way, we tell them about how how to get rid of their sins. But does, does God require you to have no sin? Is that the requirement? Think about that one. Is God's standard, make sure you have no sin? Well, it's kind of a trick question. In Luke chapter 10, does does Jesus say, well, what does the law say? And the guy says, the law says do nothing ever. Just float. No. Do this and you will live. Active, doing the right thing. So I need Jesus to take away the guilt. Propitiation, we learned about that in John chapter 2. But I also need Jesus to be the righteous for me, the positive. 
Jesus' work is complex and amazing and awesome. And he, that's why we say he came and lived a perfect life on our behalf, fulfilling, to the point of even death on a cross, he's obedient to his Father, atoning and raised from the dead. All of his benefits are given to us by faith. What's the thing behind the thing? helps you to see what a glorious and great Savior He is. But do look at verse 29 with me if you would. Sorry for those of you who shut your Bibles. Um, Verse 29. In answering the question, what should the man have done? 29. But he, desiring to justify himself. I, to be justified means to be declared righteous, to be, an, to be declared an upholder of God's law yourself. Okay, that, that the requirement is, love God, love neighbor perfectly, right? This man wants to be justified himself. I can do that. That's what it's saying. Said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And isn't it interesting, Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan. You, you, you really think you can do this? Well, by the way, I'm going to give you the easier side of things, loving neighbor. And uh, let me tell you a story and uh, have fun with that. And it's so interesting, he uses the Samaritan as the good guy. I just want to encourage you and and remind you that first and foremost, this parable of the Good Samaritan is told to someone who is self-righteous, who thinks they can justify themselves. The parable of the Good Samaritan, first and foremost, is not the gospel. It is the law. Jesus is further helping this guy. Oh, you, you think you're doing okay? I've got one for you. So what he should do is then hear this story and go, I can't do it. Jesus is just turning the screws. Now, conversely, I don't think I've ever used that word in my whole life, sorry. Um, For a different time and a different sermon and a different context, the law is good and right, and to be a good Samaritan is what we want to do. But not for our justification not to earn a right place with God. But if we have a right place with God through faith in Jesus, yeah, we want to love neighbor and love God, not to earn, but because Christ has earned and we belong to the family, and it's the right thing to do. We need to remember that. That gets us ready for Romans 10, which I think will be next week. We'll see. Okay, finally, number eight. Why don't all Christians affirm the do this and live principle? And for that, we're going to have to sit around the fire and talk till midnight. Where was this all my life? To the point where the first time I'm hearing it, I'm thinking, I don't know if that's right. Why don't we do that? Why don't we talk about this? some ways I don't know the answer to that question. I do know one particular group of people who really, 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 really don't like this. 
in church history. And there are people who don't want to give people too much assurance. Because if you tell people this, they're going to look to Jesus to forgive all of their not loving God and loving neighbor. And they're going to turn to Jesus for actively, positively loving God and loving neighbor on their behalf. And if that happens, who knows how they're going to behave. People who don't like robust assurance, 140 proof assurance, if that helps you, really strong assurance, they don't like this. If word gets out, people aren't going to behave. Well, we'll talk about this in, on other Sundays and the, the days ahead. Really what we've been talking about today is Romans 1 to 5. And in Romans 6, we talk about people's behavior. What I want to encourage you to do is not deal with behavior in Romans 1 to 5 because you'll jack up the gospel and the work of Jesus. We should be so clear on assurance that we are hearing people, like they said to the Apostle Paul, should we just sin then? And the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. May it never be. And here, let me explain to you why. But he was so clear that this is God's standard. We don't meet it. Jesus brings atonement for our rebellion and positive fulfillment by his obedience. And so you can rest. And out of your rest, you're motivated. (laughs) We've got to have that in our minds. Do this and live. I listened to three sermons yesterday on do this and live. One was really good and I was encouraged. I can't wait to email the pastor and say thank you so much. Another one was so bad I just had to stop listening. Because it was just legalism 101. A very curious sermon I listened to, the person said that in light of the Good Samaritan and these things, Jesus said to people, do this and live, when he wanted to motivate them about evangelism. Now, that's, that's kind of good because we need to tell people about their problem. Do this and live. That's the standard and you don't meet the requirement. But the preacher explained it as, you know where we really find our life? Is when we're on mission telling other people about Jesus. I just want you to think about that. Do this and live is when you do evangelism, you live. That would be saying you gain eternal life by your evangelism. We're confused about this. We're very confused about this. I would like it if every member of Omaha Bible Church would at least understand the principle, do this and live, as law. And none of us can do it. And so we need Jesus who did all of these things necessary so that by faith we would have eternal life. Touch stone, touch stone, touch stone. Do this and live, do this and live, do this and live. One final heartwarming thing, and I also have to confess a sin. I typed in sermon audio because I wanted to ride my bike. There's my sin confession, not really. Sermon audio, I wanted it to be audio, and I just wanted to think about these things. And then in quotations, do this and live. And the first hit was Omaha Bible Church. (laughs) 
And so my confession is, I preached this sermon a couple of years ago. Uh, <laughs> I thought, oh no, I preached a sermon called that. Well, at least the title's different today. Um, <sighs> if we can make this our touchstone, we don't have to keep preaching the sermon. But in many ways, I think we're going to have to keep preaching the sermon because we're legalists at heart. But we don't like the full-blown, high, unscalable law. We like legal law light, and that's legalism, and then we can do it, and we don't need Jesus to do it for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the fact that Jesus did everything required and necessary so that we might have eternal life. Thank you that he was tested and tried. Thank you for the fact that he did everything right and appropriately. We're thankful that he did these things on our behalf with us in mind. We are thankful that he was obedient to you, even to the point of death, even death on a cross, as Philippians says. Thank you that there is perfect atonement and reconciliation in Jesus. Thank you that our sins are removed. Thank you that Christ's righteousness is credited. Thank you that we can have assurance in Christ. And may we have great joy in our hearts, boasting in Christ. In his name we pray, amen.